All right, welcome back to the Hale Institute podcast. This is Ty McCline, Director of Scholarly Initiatives at Hills or at Hillsdale. I'm talking to someone from Hillsdale today. Uh, at New, at New St. Andrews, Hillsdale. Good job, Diamond. Don't take my job. So. <laughs> I tried to make myself your boss. Um, I'm talking today. I've been trying to set this up for a while, so it's great that we're finally getting to it. I'm talking to Miles Smith, who's Assistant Professor of History at Hillsdale. Uh, recently talked to one of his colleagues, Adam Carrington. At this point, you guys would have heard that episode as well. Um, so, Miles, thanks so much for coming on and glad we could make this happen. Yeah, my pleasure, Tom, and thanks for the invite. So, Miles, you um, have been at Hillsdale a little while, and uh, some people may know you from from Twitter. You're a good good promoter of Hillsdale in there, and uh, tweet a lot of interesting things uh, about history, about you know, kind of your your wheelhouse, uh, which which seems to be always expanding. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, though, for people that don't know before you got to Hillsdale. Uh, you know, where you where you came from, where you did your studies and kind of what you're doing before. Yeah, before I got to Hillsdale, I defined myself as kind of a normie con kind of, uh, you know, historian. I uh, went to College of Charleston, which is a state liberal arts college in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, wonderful city. And if, if uh, folks haven't been, they should visit. Um, and then I did my uh, my Ph.D. work at TCU, Texas Christian in Fort Worth. <clears throat> um which is uh, a, a country club uh, with and a, and a football team with a with a school attached to it, and I mean that in the most <laughs> affectionate way. So I, it was a wonderful place to study. My intellectual background was that I wanted to study Americans traveling in Europe um, and sort of thinking about uh, ideas in the 19th century. And I defined myself as sort of a historian of the Atlantic world. Uh, someone who was interested in, in the cross-pollinization of political, social, intellectual ideas in Europe and in North America and to a lesser extent in Latin America and the Caribbean. <clears throat> um, to get a job, my advisor told me, he goes, uh, well, you just need to be an Americanist because that's the only way you're going to get hired. You got to <laughs> teach, teach, you know, everywhere you, you teach two U.S. history surveys and <clears throat> maybe a Western Civ survey. So I became a, a more uh, strict Americanist for a few years. I come kind of tacking back to other stuff uh, these days. Um, <clears throat> but that's kind of my intellectual journey. I've always been interested in the history of, of religion and politics, but I, uh, I grew up Presbyterian. And so those were two things that in good uh, confessional Presbyterian fashion, we didn't mix a lot. Um, and then I became an Anglican and then found out I could do what I want. So... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Baptists become Presbyterians because they think they can do what they want. That's that's right. Well, you're just you're just you're one one step away. So. On your way, on your way to the celestial city. Uh, that's very good. And so, so you're you're in Hillsdale, Michigan, obviously now, uh, which is which is uh, you know your your previous life had been in the South, if we consider Texas the South. Yeah. Um, so so how do you how do you find Michigan? Uh, being a a, a self-professed southerner yeah well i was reared in i was reared in north carolina and that's that's where i call home home Mm -hmm. um i'm from salisbury which is about 45 minutes northeast of charlotte it's about i've been to salisbury before is it yeah Yeah. 35 40,000 people we have cheer wine uh soda we're famous for and the the grocery store food line but i think michigan's really interesting because it sort of made me rethink um 
it's interesting that you asked, and I was thinking about how how is this relevant to our conversation? You know, if you grow up in the South, you grow up in a world that's really coded um, by Southern Baptists. And mm-hmm. uh, that means the way Southern Baptists talk about politics, religion, piety, everything is, is sort of in the ether. And even if you're not a Southern Baptist, you're kind of triangulating off of that. And so I was reared in the PCA. And so even though I was Presbyterian, we were sort of uh, defined by the rhetorical and political dispositions of the Southern Baptist Church. And what I found moving to the Rust Belt was that, well, obviously there's, there's no one's a Southern Baptist in, in Michigan. Um, and so you're dealing with a completely different world. It's much more Roman Catholic on the ground, uh, quite a few Lutherans. And so even the way that you think about politics and uh, the day-to-day relationship of politics to to civil, religious, and social life is, is very different. So it's been... Uh, it's been a, a bit of a change uh, for, for, for me in a good way. It's snowing outside right now, uh, and it does that a lot. So my joke is I feel like I'm either in Narnia or Russia, depending on my mood. So, <clears throat> If you're in Detroit, it's more like Russia. If you're in Hillsdale, maybe, maybe yeah, it's more yeah. like Narnia. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's parts of Detroit that are actually quite southern feeling. And so uh, hmm. I've, I've gone some of the more urban, uh, cer- certainly working working class and working income areas. Uh, I found a couple restaurants that uh, have really good food. Um, mm. And so uh, there, there are some parts of Detroit that I venture into. I don't dress like a hipster that You're much. Right. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, I that, was a, that was a great subtle dig that it feels southern yeah. in Detroit where there's good food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you kind of you have to know some guys who know some guys, but you can't find it. But no, it's a wonderful place. This uh, yeah. Hillsdale College is is my dream job. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. The scholarly and, and, and um, scholarly community here is remarkable. Our, our social life is really wonderful. And so uh, it's good to be in Michigan. Uh, I, I miss North Carolina, but I'm, I'm very happy to be in Michigan. Yeah. With that, I, I doubt they have, uh, I'm not in Moscow right now, but I doubt they, they have cheer wine available. But if, if any of the students listening uh, find themselves in a food line or something else, uh, Piggly Wiggly, whatever, and that's right. Their hands on some cheer wine. They should they should do so post haste. <laughs> um, so so you've already. I mean, you've mentioned a little bit the distinct the regional distinctions in the way things that maybe we can say the pathologies that inform everything because of denominational dominance. The difference between uh, you know the South, but where where the SBC at least uh, you know in recent memory has been dominant. Uh, maybe we'd say more revivalist traditions, Methodist, of course. Right. In the, the north, you know, it, it played out differently. So there's a, things are coded differently. The the political and religious pathology pathologies are different. And and you talk about this a lot. I mean, you write about it. You, you write, you know, various places on different topics. Uh, National Review, of course, you're involved with the Davenant guys and Adfantes. And uh, we'll get we'll get to the piece you recently wrote uh, there there soon. But the um, you know, the the way evangelicals approach politics um, is not only conditioned by their denominational background in the region, um, but also, I mean, this, and this is kind of part of your blend, also the way that they, you know, view history. And I think that they're, uh, you know, rightly or wrong, you know, you can think of things like the light and the glory, the the influence of certain popular texts that, that seem to get in the bloodstream and uh, consciously or not historical narratives tend to dictate the way people approach politics, whether it's their denominational narratives or their 
really their view of American history. I mean, the history wars have kind of been hot uh, before, but certainly everyone knows since the 1619 Project, these kinds of things where history is like relevant again. And people I think I was reading uh, James Davison Hunter, his culture wars book from the 80s. And he's like, all this is about it's, it's aged remarkably well. All this is about is what's the meaning of America. And this will get to some of it, talking about your forthcoming book here in a bit. But talk to us a little bit about how you see this dynamic playing out of the view, you know, actionable views of history that people carry around rightly or wrongly and how they inform, you know, the, the politics at this juncture. That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I've come around to the belief that when what's called evangelicalism is, is really a philosophy of history. It's not, um, it's not so much even what you might call religious views. It's a philosophy of history. And <clears throat> it's a philosophy of history that's heavily influenced by Whig, Whig history. It's a, it's a type of Whiggish history. That's maybe, maybe define what you mean by that for the... For yeah, the Whiggish, Whig, Whig history is sort of <clears throat> a creation of the late 18th and 19th centuries. It's the idea that history, it's sort of Fran Fukuyama... Um, end of history, Protestant evangelical edition. Hmm. Um, history tilts the sort of the, the, the end of history is sort of um, liberal democracy hmm. with what you might think of as sort of American style religious toleration and religious liberty and all of that. Hmm. Um, and it's predicated on an idea of progress, an idea of material and social and even religious progress. So there's there's things that are backwards and there's things that are forwards. And forwards are things like uh, evangelicals who love America, who want to take democracy everywhere. And backwards are these both, both Roman Catholic and Protestant monarchies, state churches, uh, things, things like that. So there's forward towards progress and there's backwards. And I think that a lot of evangelicals dispositionally believe that. The great criticism of the Whig view of history is, of course, uh, Herbert Butterfield's book. And if your listeners aren't familiar with that, they should go look up that book. It's short. It's 135, 140 pages, I think. And it, get, and it criticizes this view of history. Um, history isn't um, properly aimed towards the inevitability of Anglo-American liberal democracy. Um, and people are learning that the hard way in, in this new 21st century, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it is interesting to me, and I'll, I've kind of derailed, derailed you on the original question, but the, um, you know, Whig, Whiggish kind of approach to history that's now probably default as you're, as you're kind of getting at, even if people don't know these terms, you know, it has a way of, in a roundabout way. And this way, I think your, your point is, is right and, and has is powerful insight because you see how this general view of history then informs biblical theology and the way people all of a sudden find everything we currently have or aspire to, uh, you know, it's right there in the text or a, a good and necessary consequence of the text, we might say. And you, you see this with various schools mm -hmm. of, of political thought, such as it is in, in evangelicalism. Um, so it is a weird, it, it shows the power of the historical narratives, whether people realize they're doing it or not. I don't think they're, you know, most people have a ulterior or nefarious motives in doing this, but it just happens, you know, it's just kind of in the, in the water and they start thinking this way. Um, and, you know, and it's somewhat, 
And they think that way until they have they're presented with a reason not to. I think this is this is what's what it's it is it's the the it's it's what you're programmed to think. Um, Right, right, and um, you know, so so that yeah, they're they're kind of programmed to think this way, and it's and it's in the the water, and until maybe they're they're confronted with various alternatives, um, you know, which create problems and, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of unrest in evangelical ranks. And uh, you alluded to this already, you know, we're kind of seeing some of that um, Mm -hmm. in various debates. Um, Do you see, you know, things that are happening now? We don't we don't need to fixate on anything electoral necessarily, but that's that's part of the equation. But, um, you know, the recovery projects of texts from the Protestant tradition, these kinds of things have started a certain reassessment. Um, do you think it's been, you know, productive so far, or is it? Is it? A, are people still pretty resistant to it, and it's, there's more work to be done in that regard? Well, I do think it's been productive. I mean, it, it, this is me just venting my personal spleen. I was reared in the Presbyterian Church that was much more coded as what I'll call air quotes here the Southern Presbyterian Church. Mm. And Southern Presbyterians, I think, were less likely to buy in to this kind of broad sort of Whiggish evangelical story of history because they had at one point been the bad guys. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So you remember that in the Whig evangelical American story that at one point you were the baddies. Yeah. And so you sort of started, you sort of think, well, no matter how bad I might have been, that was still us. And so... I remember <clears throat> even the story of Scotland being heavily woven into the, the history of the Presbyterian Church in the South. And in my Presbytery, you were just very aware. It's kind of a lot of folk Scottish history that you that you imbibed. Um, and of course, Bonnie Prince Charlie, like the Jacobites and all that stuff. So you were aware that you were the backward baddies that got beat by the kind of inevitableist Whig progress. And so I think a lot of people right now are sort of experiencing the fact that the whole Whig project has turned against what we think of as conservative evangelicals. Mm. And now they're like, Oh, wait, we're the baddies now. Right. And that confrontation with the first time they've sort of not been the good guys is making a lot of people rethink this kind of Mm. uh, sociological, religious and, and philosophical story. And so I think there's various degrees of prudence as people mm. rethink their kind of role in this grand American religious narrative. But uh, I think it's good that people are rethinking it. Um, <clears throat> I think my my criticism is that, well, you know, this is convenient that everybody's doing it now. Mm. Uh, some of us, if you're <laughs> right, if you're a white person in the South, you, <laughs> you were kind of the baddie very early. It was never convenient. You know, yeah. I've got a Roman numeral on the back of my name and I was, not a Baptist. It wasn't exactly a ticket to cultural conformity. So <laughs> you, you mentioned something interesting there that I think it's really more of a preliminary question. I probably should have asked already, but the, you know, you were, you were cutting against a sort of Manichaean view of history, you know, good guys versus bad. And this goes with the Whiggish territory, right? If you're going to have a progress right. narrative, you've got to have something always on the horizon that you're sort of triumphing over. And it's, it's not, uh, you know, I always, I always prefer Neil Ferguson's, sort of illustration of history of like, you know, it's an oil tanker and those things turn really slowly, but the crew freaks out frequently, you know, a lot, huh. of, you know, so the, 
it seems like stuff's moving and, you know, we're, we're going somewhere, but the turn is really actually slow, but this kind of, you know, good guys versus bad guys always towards progress. We're, and it, it just happens to be that uh, we find ourselves on the path to progress. So it means more of the same, but better. What do you, you know, this is, this is instructive given our, our audience, you know, what do you tell your students at, at Hillsdale, um, you know, in terms of the sort of philosophy of history to, to be kind of, pretentious about it, but how to approach these things better than, than that? You know, how should people look at history, evangelicals, Christians generally, instead of this, this Whiggish, you know, kind of way? Yeah, I think they need to be comfortable with the beautiful mess that human life is. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that, I mean, I think for a lot of people, that's bad news. Because if people are a mess, it means they're not good, and it means they're not on almost on the right side of of. of mm-hmm. I think for a lot of Christians, there's a right side of history, and that his mm-hmm. that right side is good, moral, you know, kind of can I say, you know, bourgeois, middle mm-hmm. class, white bread, mm-hmm. uh, as in loaf of white bread. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Christians. Yeah. And there's a, fe- there's a fear of not being that. Mm. And so for a lot, even people who might have a completely biblical sexual ethic and social ethic and whatnot, if they're not conforming to that sort of idea, they are bad. Right. And, uh, so I, I, kind of tell my students, like, you need to be comfortable with Augustine. Um, you know, you need to be comfortable with, with Luther. We read Petrarch and Petrarch's, um, on his own ignorance is a, is a document I lean into. I don't know if a lot of the folks who are more kind of, um, from specifically reformed backgrounds in your audience are familiar with that work, but you know, Petrarch basically says that, right. On some level, I'm kind of a mess. On some level, Jesus fixes that. Mm. And it doesn't mean I've stopped being a mess. It just means that the power of Christ is this thing that kind of lifts me up and makes me look towards heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's not a sort of disembodied kind of we fly away and go to heaven kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's something that's it's it's a, it's a humanistic pursuit and a Christian one. Mm. Um, and so I think we, we probably are able to talk to our students um, in specific ways that maybe some evangelicals aren't because evangelicals think in more, they think they're thinking in Christian terms. Mm-hmm. They're usually thinking in moral terms and those mm-hmm. aren't always synonymous. Yeah, that's good. The, I mean, do you think that this, this same sort of moral sentimental view, not only of history, of, you know, when we're talking about history, it's really what you're, you're saying and they're most interested in is my place in the narrative. You know, right. where, where am I at? How do I measure up? And so then we have good guys, bad guys. And of course, I want to be on the good guy's side. Um, do you think this is, has made evangelicals, it's kind of a loaded question, but evangelicals inappropriately responsive to, you know, politics in our own day, such that they not only can't handle the decisions or the presented the problems presented in a, in a sort of rational and prudent way, but they, you know, either overreact or underreact because it's through this sentimental lens uh, that's informed by their, their ultimate view of history, which is kind of eschatological. 
Right. So I think it's both. I, mm. I think what's interesting to me is that evangelicals have tend to re- respond to politics on biblicist terms, which makes mm. them more and less capable of actually responding to politics. Mm. Um, and so I think of you think about the stuff that happens in our own day and age and in, and in history, too. You know, <clears throat> if you're an evangelical in 1649, mm-hmm. what are you supposed to do? What's mm-hmm. the biblical choice yeah. between Cromwell, a military dictator, who a pretty violent guy, <laughs> and Charles II in exile, a mm-hmm. profligate sex hound, also kind of a violent guy. And so like, like what, you know, what's the moral choice? I think we've, we've, we've programmed ourselves to think that somehow we reached an end of history where our choice would always between, between George W. Bush mm. and somebody named Clinton mm. or something like that. And so, so it would be this nice choice where we could pick this kind of bourgeois, moral, love America, go bring democracy and liberalism and good stuff to the world mm. versus a, some sort of obviously immoral baddie, mm. but that's, that's not history. Mm-hmm. Um, history is not a choice between a moral, op, you know, uh, alternative and an immoral one. Mm-hmm. It's much more complicated than that. And, uh, historians have kind of, or uh, excuse me, evangelicals and evangelical historians too, mm-hmm. have kind of bought into this. And this is why they're so incapable of responding to our present moment with Mm. anything approaching intellectual dexterity. This is why you have a million think pieces on why evangelicals voted for Trump. Durka, durka, durka. As well, (laughs) they did what they've always done and voted for Republican. There's, Mm -hmm. there's nothing interesting that happened in the 2016 election, unless you look at politics through a strictly, and I'm using air quotes here, moral paradigm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting to me the you know, in some in some ways, you know, Christians, you know, not just evangelicals have always been maybe, maybe we will just stick with Protestants for now have always been prone to this. Because if you look, you know, 1649, there's these kinds of arguments being made. Cromwell's the obvious choice. Of course, we had to kill Charles the first. It was an easy decision. There's there are people who don't think that way, but there's always some that do. And it's just, you know, do you want the Catholic, the closeted Catholic or not so closeted? And, you know, do you want the Stuarts? But of course, that's terrible. This is much better. And it's like, well, Cromwell's basically a monarch. No, 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 he's definitely not. He's something different. It's like, well, no, he's he, he is. So we didn't actually change anything. We just switched out, you know, and, and uh, some people recognize that. I think, you know, like John Owen never forgives him for it and, and won't talk to him or something. And others are like, no, this is this is the Republic now. It's different. And so it is all parliament too. So it's, you know, we, we have a way of doing this thinking that um, I would say thinking our moment is so unique all the time mm-hmm. and it's really not, uh, we're, we're doing the same things everyone else. And it, Oh, it turns out, uh, you know, Bill Clinton is less, is less than moral. And George W. Bush was kind of a violent guy too. You know, so it's like the same yeah. people. It's just, we, in a in a liberal Arab, society, Arab Christians have very strong feelings about yes. George W. Bush. Of course, you know, and, and I guess you could say there's more, we have enough distance now and a younger, younger people are, are less, 
sentimental about the people their parents and grandparents were about. So now they seem more suspect or, you know, there's like a Nixon revival now, you know, these kinds right. of things. So things get reassessed and that's how history works. You need some, some distance to really think about it. Uh, but that's bad for being responsive. If it takes us 10 years every time to fig actually figure out what happened. Um, so it's just, it's just, and I think um, like you're saying, if, if you're just studying history, just be comfortable with that. That's how people work. Uh, but don't don't think your moment is that unique. It's actually the oil tanker, you know, barely <laughs> changing course. And it's pretty much the same as it was before. Yeah, you got to have a pretty thick skin. And I think this is important. As a Christian, you have to have a thick skin for this reason. <clears throat> There's, I think, an idea about that um, everybody's calling is to be a specific type of moral. And I think like, actually my calling in, in a churchly sense is to worship in word and sacrament. Mm -hmm. So, so the relative niceness of my, this is, this is where I think the rubber can heat the road, meet the road. And this is going to sound seditious to some people. Um, <laughs> the relative niceness of my president, is subordinate to whether he will kill people or or not kill people according to the degree they want to kill me. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's actually a Christian consideration. Now, for some people, I just said I I, I just became a theocrat or theonomist, or for the people who don't know those words, some sort of baddie. Yeah. Um, but I don't even think that's establishmentarian. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think the U.S. Constitution basically says, hey. The magistrate is supposed to protect these people doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the morality of the American magistrate, to me, is subordinate to his ability to do that effectively and rightly. <clears throat> yeah. And no, I think that, that's why a lot of Scott Presbyterians mm -hmm. in 1660, when they're presented with a choice between continuing, right, the, the, uh, the, the, the Commonwealth uh, and and inviting Charles II back, they say, well, which of these guys is willing to protect us doing this mm -hmm. Scott Presbyterian stuff? And Charles II says, I will, mm -hmm. instead of the, the, the Congregationalist Commonwealth. So a lot of, guess what, Scott Presbyterians who hate Charles II, they don't like him one bit, are like, oh, yeah, he's our guy. Yeah. And yeah. we've forgotten that that's a normal calculation for a mm. Christian to make. I've seen, I've read, I'm reading, I'm reading um, Tim Carney's American Carnage mm. right now, which is a very good book. It's very well written. And he, he's, I don't necessarily agree with him, but I think he's trying to, to be judicious. Mm. I think so many people will say, well, Christians shouldn't do transactional politics. Mm -hmm. No, everybody does transactional mm -hmm. politics. The U S constitution is a transactional politic. And so we just need to be comfortable with terms that don't map on to this moral skeleton that we've created really in the middle of the 20th century for, mm -hmm. for Christians in all time and all places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, even, you know, since we're sticking with the end of the, the Commonwealth or the, the Republic period, you know, you have a calculation there when, you know, Oliver Cromwell dies and Richard steps in and he's like totally incapable of holding this thing together you know, we would say that he can't keep the lights on, right? He can't right. do, he's, he's totally inept. And uh, so the calculation there, which Americans, because of our prosperity in, in recent years, in general stability, we haven't had to think about very basic aspirations for, for your leaders of, can you keep it running? 
can you keep general order, these very basic requirements? And then, you know, hey, maybe it's, it, we don't really care if it's a Mormon or whatever. Um, but we don't we don't have haven't had to do that in a long time. Maybe that's that's changing. I don't know. It's changed on a cultural level of can you maintain the culture? That's that's one step above these even much more rudimentary political questions. So, you know, it, it behooves Christians to to get a little more comfortable with doing this because it is happening, at least in a certain regard. Right. Um, so I think that's useful. Do you have, I mean, at the, at the end, I'll, I'll usually ask, you know, for book recommendations, but you, you mentioned something you're reading now, so I'll do it um, a bit here. What, you know, is there something you read, whether it's a, an old source or newer book that kind of pushed you towards the conceiving of Christian political um, thought in this way? You know, what, what kind of things, if you could think back on your own intellectual, you know, process, what kind of got you to start thinking this way, as opposed to maybe a more sentimentalist view that, that we're, we're critiquing here? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to out him on, in, in a very public way, but I'm going to, cause I don't think he'll <laughs> mind. And I don't know if he'll ever listen to this. Um, it's my dad. You know, I think I, being reared in a Presbyterian home <clears throat> um, without being reared a specific type of evangelical or movement conservative. My parents were conservative people. I went to a Christian school, um, but we didn't really invest a lot of energy in thinking that uh, this is what God wants us to do politically. Hmm. Uh, so I think my background was that pol the relationship of politics and religion was pretty adiaphora. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of people that wouldn't be good enough. And, and maybe someone who's more theocratic by disposition would, mm -hmm. would, would tell me that fair. Mm -hmm. They welcome to criticize that. The other thing though, was I never thought that liberal democratic America in 1998, when I started high school was right. A de jure divino mm -hmm. sort of, creation that God had been shaping the world to. Um, so when the, I'm, that was, you know, 25, 26 years ago. Um, the fact that America isn't what it was in 1907, in 1997, doesn't surprise me. <clears throat> I'm not shocked. I'm also not shocked that Christians might not share the dispositions of the Republican or Democratic Party in the mid 1990s. Mm -hmm. So I, I think some of it was just parenting. My parents, not perfect parents, nobody's are, but they did a great job on that. I think just having a pretty good expectation on that. And then the other thing, this is going to sound crazy. Um, when I was my first year of grad school, I read a novel. Um, and it's you're re everybody should read it. It's a magnificent novel called The Leopard um, by Tomasi de Lampedusa. And Lampedusa sets his novel in 1860 Italy. So it's when the Italian unification wars are happening. <clears throat> and uh, the, the main character is the Prince of Selina. And it's kind of, it's a very tratty novel. So anybody who's listening, who's a trad, you'll like this <laughs> because it's a Sicilian aristocrat confronting the liberal capitalist uh, Piedmontese takeover of Italy. And it's, it's a true, it's a true trad. If you're a trad at heart, you'll like it. Um, but there's uh, a scene at the end where Sicily is, quote unquote, voting to join liberal, the liberal kingdom of Italy. Um, and it's a rigged plebiscite, of course. 
And there's a local toast because they're trying to get the Prince of Selena to vote for un- unification, which he does. Um, and so they have three little goblets of liqueurs. One's green, one's white, and one's red for the colors of the, the mm-hmm. Italian tricolor flag. And so the prince grabs the white one. And this guy, he, this guy who's watching says, ah, one last homage to the Bourbons, the old Bourbon traditional throne and altar monarchy. Um, and he sips it and you don't think anything else, but there's a line in there where, where the Prince of Selena says for everything to stay the same, everything must change. <clears throat> and I've thought about that so much because if we want, I think if we want to keep the best of liberal America and I'm defining myself at class classically as a liberal, I don't define myself as a classical liberal. Note mm-hmm. the difference. Classically, I'm a liberal, but I'm not a classical liberal because that means libertarian, and I'm not a libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, I read guys like Francois Guizot, Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln, um, Lord Macaulay, um, all these famous liberals of the 19th century would be very comfortable with throatier state and Christian interactions mm-hmm. than what a lot of 90s, 1990s, and early aughts evangelical Christians are conditioned to think is acceptable. So in my mind, for everything to stay the same about the liberal America that our constitution, I think creates, everything's going to have to change about how we think about politics. Um, We cannot, you're not going to be able to reflexively just think the same way. And so that novel, I think made me aware of, okay. um, I'll use Ron DeSantis as, as an example. DeSantis is pretty comfortable with using his state government to, to push around uh, cultural actors that a lot of Christians would not be comfortable historically with the state pushing around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's good. I would like Florida to be what it was when I went there as a kid to visit my family. Um, and I think Ron DeSantis probably wants Florida to be what it was, the best of what it was. And so he's sort of realizing for everything to stay the same in the Florida that he loves, Everything's going to have to change about his party's confrontation with social, cultural, and educational actors that have been sort of let uh, to run wild. So uh, that novel, and as it's, it's not a you know, it wasn't like a, a work of politics or anything. It wasn't a Bible verse. It's really just that line in that novel because in order to save the Sicily, he knew the prince decides everything uh, has to change, and that's. Uh, that sort of taps out of some of the language versus accelerationism that people mm. might want to embrace. I think it's just to say, look, you're going to have to rethink a lot of stuff if you want things to stay what they are. And I, I would define myself as someone who likes a lot of what liberal America uh, is. Um, and so that, that book really affected me very deeply. Um, yeah. And there's a magnificent film version of it too, from 1963-64 with Burt Lancaster and mm-hmm. Claudia Cardinal um, before she was in the Pink Panther. So it's it's a, it's a really magnificent film. Excellent. Yeah, I've, I have not seen the film or, or read the book, so we'll we'll put that on the list for everybody mm-hmm. uh, listening as well, um, as well as myself. the The flip side of this, I thought this is a throwaway comment, really, but the uh, flip side of this is, you know conversations I'm involved in because I just do 
intellectual work now, you know, I don't have to worry about constituencies <laughs> or do anything real, you know, I get to just do whatever I want, but something I, so I, I get to state things as extreme as I want them to be. I get to be as purist as I want to be because I'm in a laboratory, you know, I get to do that. But something yeah. I've kind of thought about recently is, is the flip side of what you're saying, which is in enacting change, you know, there does have to be in order to get people on board and to build coalitions and actually do something, you know, like Ron DeSantis has done in Florida, we'll stick with him, <laughs> is you, you've got to have some, you know, the change has to be in some ways gradual if it's going to be fast. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with rhetorical power as well. I mean, I remember writing this piece, which I stand by all of it, but it's when Ron DeSantis was talking about some of the educational and curriculum changes he was making. He, he used all the kind of standard, you know, the stuff I think is lame now, language about free thinking and, you know, we need to get away from, the, the line was get away from indoctrination and back to education. And this, of course, annoys me because I'm like, well, education is indoctrination. That's a dumb statement. <laughs> but it's like, but if you're going to do something, you have to say it that way, right? You do. And I, I recently was reading a book. I forget the author now, but it's, it's called, uh, I think it's called White Christian Nation, something like that. It's from, it's probably 10 years ago. And was it Robert it's Jones? Not, it's not Robert Jones. Okay. It's, a, it's a different one. I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking on this now. It's either that or One Nation Under God, which is all about corporate America and Billy Graham and stuff. But um, anyway, the, the point was, was basically this of like the the conservatives, the way he was describing conservatives. He's obviously not friendly, was perfect. He was saying they, they will do this stuff, but the the rhetoric and language always changes to get mm -hmm. it there. And they yeah. don't have to map on. So you say things like free thinking, choice, all this stuff. But really what you're doing is kind of saying, I'm going to use state power to uh, indoctrinate your kids in a, uh, what we'd say is more American, friendly, Christian, whatever you want to say, way and combat, you know, our opponents. But I'm going to put it in this way that's that's very palatable to people. And, you know, I think I'm more appreciative of that in, in politics now than I, I was before, even as I continue to state things extremely, you know, for my own for my own enjoyment. But um. You were getting at this earlier, so I want to I want to make sure we get to yeah. it. Now, you you have well go ahead. Yeah. Well no 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 don't take your time. Go ahead. Okay. You were getting at this uh you were talking about, you know, certain nineteenth century liberals in the in the sense you're defining them, um being comfortable with, you know, in a certain way. So this is this is getting to uh we were talking about your forthcoming book a little a little bit and things you get at there, and you can you can tell us about that as as much as you're able. But the this idea that, you know, the the constitutional order as you see it and as and as though you know someone like lincoln would have seen it might um preclude at least national establishment for sure but then there's a trickle down i mean one of the first things i read from you i think before we knew each other was in uh a, you know a book of essays on disestablishment in each state i think you did south carolina and uh, it's, it's a great book everyone should should read it it's because it shows how complicated the process is uh, to get there, but, the, but there is this trickle down effect and it's kind of in the water, but it doesn't, even if, as you're precluding an official establishment of denomination, it doesn't mean that institutional Christianity is eradicated or that people are uncomfortable with uh, the way you were describing it earlier, a, a closer relationship between uh, our institutions and, and a public Christianity. So, you know, tell tell us about this this mix, as you see it, that America kind of comes up with in the, you know, antebellum period and thereafter is still alive and well, um, as opposed to maybe what most people's conceptions of of America's, you know, kind of experiment, uh, as they usually want to put it, would be. It's a great question. So I, I came up with this term. Um, my my book will be out hopefully in, in the in the spring or summer of, of uh 
2024. And I came up with this term because I was watching the, the discourse about Christian nationalism and I found myself very conflicted. I'm an Anglican, I'm an Anglican vestryman. So right, as, as I put it in the book and in a, in a couple of pieces, the cornerstone of my faith is a book designed to Christianize and more specifically, Protestantize a nation, the early mm -hmm. modern English nation. Um, and so I, I like if you say Christian nationalism heresy, I can't agree with you. Mm -hmm. You don't I don't have to like it. I don't have to want it. But the minute you say that phrase, I just can't I can't go with someone on that. Um, <clears throat> and it, so I was I'm, I'm not friendly to probably some of the, the, the more theocratic propositions about government. Um, and yet I found myself being sympathetic to su uh, substantive Christian commitments and institutions. And so I found myself circling back to the idea of institutions. So I came up with the, I mean, came up with it. I'm using the term Christian institutionalism. Mm -hmm. The idea that like the, you, you, we Christianize institutions. And that's really the foundation of, of what someone might want to call a Christian nation. I'll give an example. I don't think we've thought about the degree to which Christianity influenced the creation of the American medical system hmm. uh, between 1850 and 1950. My cousins were all born at Presbyterian hospital mm -hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, guess what? That was a Presbyterian hospital. And so a lot of people, there's this, there's this reflex to say, well, hospitals can't be Christian or more specific hospitals can't be Presbyterian. And my, my question for them is why not? Mm -hmm. Because I think what we've done is we've said that anything that, that is Christian must necessarily be churchly. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is there's a lot of Christian institutions that aren't the American church, like a family, right? Is a, you have Christian families, mm -hmm. right? You can have, uh, Christian schools. You have all this stuff. And so I think people say, well, how do we know it's Christian? I was like, well, what, like, what else would it be? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I wanted to point out that there was a lot of Christian institutionalism in the early Republic. The even guys who weren't interested in being establishmentarians were pretty committed to the idea that these institutions need to stay Christian. Um, for the American Republic to work, <clears throat> these institutions need to be Christian. That didn't make them theocrats, didn't make them theonomists, didn't make them anything other than guys who were pretty sure that for the American Republic to work, most of its institutions needed to be conditioned on Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that would keep the country, by and large, Christian. And some of those institutions are state institutions. Um, so I I think I hope I change. I tried to change. Admittedly, people would say would change the terms of the debate. Yes, mm -hmm. of course, I change the terms of the debate. Um, I'm a historian. I can do that. Someone's willing to publish it. I can do that. So, um, so I change. I change the terms of the debate. I think, and some of it is tapping out of this kind of reflexive um, need to believe that the church is the only Christian institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just rereading. Well, we we reran it at um, American Reformer. You know, Benjamin Rush's defense of using the Bible in 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 schools, and he's. I mean, other writings he does this too. But in that that letter, it's a long letter, Jeremy Belknap. 
um, you know, he's, he's very obviously not an establishmentarian. I mean, he was pretty, he was like a microcosm of the entire American map of Protestantism. It was unclear, like which one he was with. <laughs> he went to all the churches, but he was, he was definitely, you know, definitely believed in Christ. I would, I would say he's not heterodox, uh, fatally, but he's, he's got some heterodox, very clearly non-establishmentarian because he wouldn't know which one to choose, <laughs> but he is adamant that the, the schools need to be not just Christian, but basically Protestant. I mean, there's, there's, that's his entire kind of world. So that, you know, that this, uh, formulation you're you're kind of putting forward i think makes um you know may, it may be compelling in a contemporary way to many people but it certainly makes sense of a lot of the historical record of and, and opinions um not only of the big household names but of you know kind of as i always like to say what matters most is on the ground like what's the what's the general view of people in everyday life on the ground not just elites that can write opinion pieces in the new york times but like what what are people really doing and I think this makes a lot of sense of it, um, almost almost in a thoughtless way for probably a lot of people of just, well, you're starting a hospital. What what kind of hospitals it's going to be? Well, it's not going to be a, a Catholic one because we're Presbyterians. So, and, and then it's not an option for it to just be nothing, irreligious. That would be strange. You know, there's just no other, like, it's just the, the only paradigms they have. So, of course, that's what you we've, have. You know. We've lived on the fumes of a Christian order for a long time. Completely convinced that we weren't living on the fumes of the Christian order. Yeah, um, yeah. and I think that uh, the sooner people realize that, the sooner you can have a real conversation um, mm. about about the relationship between Christianity, culture, Christianity, the state, all of that. And um, and it's important to have these conversations on non-churchly terms. Um, I, I, I. This is going to sound anti-clerical um but i can do that um i don't think pastors are the best people to listen to on their understanding between the historic relationship of the church and the state mm. um because they don't know mm -hmm. i mean i'm not knocking them <clears throat> their 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 priorities are different mm -hmm. um but I think so much of what goes on, particularly in, in reform circles now, is these kind of dueling sociologies. You have some people who are coming from some sort of Fox News watching fundamentalists or the type of fundamentalists who think that Fox News is, you know, bad or something. And so that they're kind of this kind of, uh, I think what one scholar has called it, Christo-Americanist. And you see that in these kind of um, particularly fundamentalist Pentecostal, uh, these kind of uh, very charismatic groups. And so if you come out of one of those things into the reform churches, you're coming into a reform church precisely because you don't want to hear about politics in America anymore. Yeah. And there's a tradition within reform churches that will tell you, guess what? We don't believe there's any connection. Welcome. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is where like a lot of the kind of, um, <clears throat> the, the, the very kind of spirituality of the church guy. I mean, that, that like parts of the OPC are really conditioned on being fundamentalist adjacent mm -hmm. because they have to be fed by people <clears throat> who are coming from that world. Another group of people, and I would define myself as one of these who kind of grew up with a pretty throaty spirituality church thing. I'm not mm -hmm. interested in theocracy, but I'm also just not interested in being told a story that I don't think is true mm -hmm. anymore. So I, 
I didn't land in Anglicanism because of political theology, but I think being an Anglican has allowed me to rethink those things a little bit easier, or at least just have an honest conversation about them. Yeah. Um, Anglicanism is just a bit more comfortable with the kind of social and cultural aspects of Christianity than mm. the, the kind of pietist Southern reformed uh, Southern mm. Presbyterian um, faith. But there's, there's, there, I, I don't, I'm not knocking any of those traditions. Mm. I think they all have their, their place. I think in this particular conversation, it's easier to have um, outside of church. Yeah. And it should be had outside of church. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, you know, this is something I've talked with, um, and I think he, t- he tweets about it with Stephen Wolf, you know, quite a bit about because both of us, you know, have a big appreciation for, um, you know, for 17th century New England, where in which case you had just some of the most, you know, capable. The only thing you're, the only thing you're wrong about, by the way, time is <laughs> my New England supremacy. I know. I know. I know. The, uh, but you, but you had, you know, the the ministers there in the, a few of those generations were just extremely capable people, and you're in a state of affairs where it's it's almost required. I mean, so people to be this involved in policymaking and and preaching even about you know political things, and that continues for a while. I mean, we all know you know Jasper Adams and and things like that, just highly involved. But that's not my alma mater, I might add. Oh, uh, that's true. That's true. Very good. Um, that's not a requirement, though, and you also just need to recognize most of our ministers. This is not, again, like you said, not a knock on them, are just not that, which is fine. Right. And so, um, and I would say that those those ministers in the past who have been hit, really, when they're entering those conversations, they're not doing it as the office anymore. They're doing it as anyone else who's just able to talk about it. So it's really not theologians and pastors who are best at doing this kind of stuff and they should be comfortable without, you know, it's not abrogating their, their duty to, uh, you know, to allow it to happen in a, in a different way. And I don't actually think it's most pastors who are demanding they control the conversation, but in fact, congregants who are demanding they step yes. into it, you know, which, which is unfair, I guess, is my main point to, to say that to your minister, either passively or, you know, uh, or explicitly. So, um, but we we could go on about that. I'm, I'm sure uh, we're somewhat coming up on on time. I've I've plugged the book a bit, but maybe tell us anything else you want to about the book coming out this year, so so people can be on the lookout for that. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's it's a book on um, the sort of the relationship between Christianity and 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 institutions, both state and civil institutions. By civil, I just mean ones that aren't associated with government uh, reflexively. And uh, it's it's a much better book than than when I started out. The team at the Davenant Institute Press, uh, Mark Hamilton and Reese Laverty in particular, uh, is just a dynamite job. I um the forward is going to be written by uh, someone who uh, who is a, a much uh, more interesting and important person than me. And I'll just wink and say he's more clearly reformed than I am. Um, and so uh, so uh, uh, that that's that's great. I um I just wanted to write it because I got tired of 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 the conversations that we're having about that were being had, um, particularly with regard to Protestants. Um, uh, Stephen Wolf's book is a is a book of politics, and so I'm I'm not doing what 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 Stephen is. I'm not trained to do to do uh, what what he does. What I wanted to do is just talk about history. Um, and to be a little bit more open-ended about about what people might think about uh, religion, the, the history of religion in the United States at 
during the first you know, 70, 80 years of the country's history. But I think that era is important, not because we can go back to it, but we can understand that, okay, these guys are serious Protestants and serious Christians who, saw, who thought serious things about the relationship between institutions and their religion. Hmm. Um, and we need a category for that in our own day. Hmm. And so, and, and it needs to be a category that includes maybe some aspects of electoral politics, but isn't limited to it. I think this is the problem. Um, we should be thinking about schools as much as we think about elections. And I think that's happening. Uh, New St. Andrews is, does a, a, a good job of right, thinking seriously about education, but we should be thinking about uh, schools. We should be thinking about writing laws at state, at state house level. Um, all of these things should take in our energy as much as thinking about federal politics. Um, we should be thinking about how to petition the courts. Uh, the right of petition is, is, is something that is available to Christians. Um, and so I just wanted to push it for a broader sort of uh, reflection on the relationship between Christianity and institutions, because so much of our energy is pointed understandably to federal elections um, and national events. And so I just wanted to say, hey, there's a lot more that these people in this era thought about. Um, and we can't, we can't go back to the early republic, but we can take, we can learn a lot from their seriousness mm. with how they interacted between uh, particularly Protestantism and, and institutions. Excellent. Well, there's, a, I think that's a great note to end on. I mean, we could riff on many of those elements for a lot longer, but um so the book, does the book have a, a public title yet that people can? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Uh, okay. That's probably one of the things that will, that will be the next thing that we'll announce. And then um, okay. uh, we'll announce the, the, the principals who are forwarding it and blurbing it. And so uh, I'm excited about it. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's an ironic um, project. And I think it reflects, um, you know, uh, I think hopefully a, 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 a appreciative spirit for, all Protestant mm. traditions. And I also say some nice things about Roman Catholics mm. in there too, because I think uh, it's important to realize that Roman Catholics, I think actually lived um, in such a way that they, they understood the importance of institutions, mm -hmm. even as mm. a cultural a culture was pushing against them. So I think there's, mm. there's admirable things to learn from early, early Republic Roman Catholics as well. Mm. But the book's mainly about Protestant. So, Yes. Um, lastly, any um, any current book recommendations for, you know, for Protestants? Well, and anybody, you just included Catholics, but, um, you know, good history, things, things you've been reading, stuff that, that will help um, the, anybody navigate, you know, the, the current kind of waters or maybe just, you know, fun, fun books. Yeah, I uh, I have so many um, on my on my shelf uh, here, I'm one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the relationship between empire and Christianity in the United States. So, you know, we talk a lot about nationhood mm -hmm. nationalism. I'm, I've sort of asked myself about empire to what degree should we understand ourselves as imperial? Um, Yoram Hazani, who I, I really respect, um, pu pushes against the idea of empire. And I think for very understandable reasons, um, one thing I'm 
curious about though is to the degree that it's it's a reality and we just kind of have to have to, to live with it. so I'll, I'll just mention this book i have a copy of it um near my desk it's called habits of empire uh, by walter nugent and it's somewhat dated i, I um it was written in 2008 um but it's called the book is called habits of empire a history of american expansion um nugent was a professor at indiana and then finished his career at uh, at notre dame he was a I think a, a, a relatively observant Roman Catholic, um, but he's asking questions about empire from you know 1783 to I think he has a little bit in there about 2001, mm-hmm. um, and so it takes in the kind of long durée of American history and it sort of asks the question: To what degree do we understand ourselves as uh, participating in an imperial project? To the degree that the Amer- American citizens are imperial subjects. Um, and so it's a fascinating book. So that's that's kind of the most interesting immediate thing I'm reading. My other reading right now, since it's still technically Christmas break, is all very um, uh, not political and, and, and not particularly scholarly. So I'm reading Anne of Green Gables uh, for the mm. first time, which is uh, I, maybe I'll get real creative and spin a political theology of, uh, of, of <laughs> Lee or something uh, like that. But uh, the, uh, the Nugent book is, is certainly worthwhile. And I think um, it's worth just at least a, a breeze read to understand the reality of the United States as even imperial, not merely national, but imperial. Excellent. Well, Miles, uh, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a great discussion. I, I think we could go on, but um, I think this would be be very helpful for people. Everyone should look out for Miles's book. You can follow him on, on Twitter. You want to give the, the Twitter handle X handle? Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm at IV miles. Uh, okay. Just I is in India. V is in victory. And then miles it's my ordinal in front of my name. So I got tired of seeing the, the Roman numeral four after my name. So I put it in front of my name to make my Twitter handle, but changing uh, the anyway. rules of the game. Yeah, that's, that's right. Time. And thank you so much. This has been fantastic. So, Yes, thanks. Thanks so much. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, but everyone follow Miles so you can look look for the book updates when it comes out. And, you know, just a, it's a good follow. Uh, interesting. Uh, not always not always as serious as it, it is. Your, <laughs> your tweets are not always as serious as they're taken. Uh, but that, that entertains me even more. Um, so good. Good follow and look out for Miles's work. And, um, you know, if you're ever in Hillsdale, I guess I, I don't know what the spot at Hillsdale is to find to find you, but that people should should swing through to see if they can hang out with you. But uh, yeah, my off my office door is open, so I'm I'm a pretty I'm a pretty nice guy in in real life. Usually, I'm pretty <laughs> excellent. All right, well, thanks, much. Hey, thanks, Simon.